So this morning, once again in Romans chapter 13, looking specifically during this overview now as we're finishing up Romans and chapter 13 verses 8 through 14, the conduct of the body part 2. Now quickly, I say quickly as this review continues to grow as we move through the book of Romans, let's get our heads back in the game and our hearts back positioned for where we're at in the gospel this morning. For Paul begins and says that he is not ashamed, but he is eagerly obliged and especially for this sermon this morning let's hold on to that concept of obligation he is eagerly obliged to the gospel both to jew and to gentile for a gospel that is the power of god unto salvation the wrath of god revealed against men and the righteousness of god revealed in making propitiation for them ransoming back his people purchasing our lives with the lifeblood of Christ so that the one who is eternally and holy in his justice may also be the justifier for Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as something so much more than belief. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, the very power of God on display, faith being credited for something much more valuable than faith. Having been justified through the gift of faith, we then rejoice, we boast in the hope of God. For we were dead, born in the image of our father Adam. From dust we came and to dust we would return, but in Christ we live because in Christ we indeed have died. We are those that in this new life know our identity. That by the baptism of the Holy Spirit we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We are risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life. We have a profound identity. The identity of those who have come to life from death. We've been called into existence out of that which did not exist all by the power of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Men indeed are enslaved to their own being For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But the saints have a new being and a new identity. For you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And therefore we can claim the most outrageous of statements in all of Scripture that indeed all things work for good. For we know For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And so once again this morning I'll ask you, are you called? Do you love God? Do you love God for God Himself? And if you do, then you can go to bed tonight certain that you have never had a bad day. When we are called by God, we are called according to God's purpose He doesn't call us without cause. He doesn't call us without reason. For salvation belongs to the Lord. In Romans chapter 9 verse 16, Paul says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Friends, the good news of the gospel, or at least a portion thereof, is that mercy and compassion are not opposed to justice, but that mercy and compassion are are part and partial to God's justice to the extent that if the thing we call justice does not contain mercy and compassion, it is definitively not justice. Our God will not be accused. Instead, Paul says He will be glorified both for His wrath and for His mercy In his justice. For concerning the glory of God and salvation, Paul's heart breaks for the lost. And it breaks, particularly for those that are lost and think they're not. And having lacked the intimacy of salvation, have replaced it with a cheap counterfeit, establishing a system, a system of religion in this particular context, something called the law. And yet God's glory is not in man's law. 
God's glory instead is in the word of faith. A word that is near you, that Paul says is in your heart and in your mouth. For if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans ten, thirteen, And knowing this then, we are bold in evangelism. Man, we're bold. I watch these kids walk out the door to go to children's church. Man, we've got some bold kids. You look at them and you think to yourself, here may be the generation that turns the world upside down. We are bold in our evangelism. We understand the difference We understand the difference between means and cause. We are not those that continue in the milk, but instead press on into the solid things. We know that we are the means, but Christ is the cause. How beautiful are the feet of those that preach good news. Man, I am more than satisfied. I am thrilled that the Lord has saw fit to allow us to play the part of being the means. I'm thrilled that we get to experience and see His glory when He plays the part of the cause. Will all believe? No. Because faith doesn't come through the hearing of the word of men. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ and Christ alone. Friends, we can be bold because for us, success is not necessarily people accepting the good news of the gospel, though we pray earnestly that they do. Instead, success is the faithful proclamation of the good news. In other words, we trust God to produce His effect for faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is not academic. It's personal. Which is why Paul turns his gaze concerning these truths to those who are the nearest and dearest to his own heart in his own day. What about Israel? What about his brothers according to the flesh? What about Israel? Friends, let me tell you what about Israel. What about Israel is this. Christ is faithful. He's not abandoned His people Israel. Instead, Paul says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have been grafted in. Friends, it ought to humble us. He says, I'll have mercy and compassion on whom I will. I'll harden whom I will. And He has chosen to display the glory of His grace in the hardening of national Israel for a season that Gentiles like you and me might be saved. Man, if you weren't already bold in evangelism, that should just push it right through the roof. The result is the suffering of the Gentile church. The enduring to the end that will provoke jealousy in Israel on the day when they look on the one whom they have pierced so that Jew and Gentile together may be saved. Church, we are the body that must provoke to jealousy. We are the living sacrifice. You are the miracle that God is doing. God is not just doing a miracle in you. The miracle is you. The new creation, sentient beings, awake, living, feeling, desiring the things of the kingdom. In this perfect design of God, we are not all the same. Instead, we have been perfectly equipped for the role that we were designed to fulfill. So fulfill your role and be what God called you to be. Let love be genuine. Literally, let love be without pretending. But instead, true agape. That kind of love that's not the, not the fleeting emotion of the moment, 
But the love of Christ that led to the cross, where with great intention of the will, we desire and then do the best for that which is loved. Where we desire and do the best for your God, the best for your brother, the best for your sister, even the best for your enemy. For in Romans chapter 12 verse 21, the apostle says, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. There is a particular way that the Christian is supposed to walk that all stems from the reality of their salvation. With great intention, do the best good for your enemy? Yes, because when you were the enemy of Christ, with great intention, He did the best good for you. Be subject to the governing authorities that God ordains. They're a servant of good, and they're a servant for wrath. All in God's perfect time, today, owe nothing except for love. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, the apostle continues now in a very practical section on what it looks like for the Christian to walk well in this world. And it doesn't simply mean paying your taxes. Paul continues in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, and he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul speaks about that which Christians should owe. And he speaks about it both in the positive and the negative. The negative and the positive. Any time that an author wants to drive home a point in the Greek language, it is always presented this way. We saw it back in chapter 9. So therefore it depends not on man. Instead it depends on God. We see it here again in this practicum section when it comes to what the people of God owe in this world. Here's what you don't owe. Here's what you do owe. In the negative, Paul says, owe nothing to anyone. In the positive, he says, you owe it to love everyone. So here's the dichotomy. Owe no one anything except to to love, to agape with great intention, to will and to do the best. The best for each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is what Christians shouldn't owe, and this is what Christians should owe in the gospel. You know, talking about debt, debt is one of those things that has a tendency to make people uncomfortable. It's one of those sins that seems to be particularly unique in this manner. You know, we'll we'll get together in, in, in prayer and in confession and 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 in discipleship and we'll talk about pride and we'll talk about lying and we'll talk about coveting and we'll talk about lust and no one is proud of any of that, or at least they shouldn't be, but few people will fight you on that those subjects. When you talk about the evils of pride and how we all struggle with it, when you talk about the evils of lying and how we all struggle with it, when you talk about the evil of covetousness and we all struggle with it, and you talk about the evils of lust and we all struggle with it, nobody likes it, nobody's proud of it, but few people will fight you on it. Because we all know it's true in all of us to some point. People have seen it in me, I've seen it in you, you've seen it in your friend, your friend's seen it in you. But boy, you start talking about what is owed. And people will get sketchy on you quick. The Greek here is ophelio. It means to be indebted, especially concerning money. As a matter of fact, the root specifically means concerning money, particularly. And then out of that concept, it is sometimes applied to other things. 
to be indebted, especially concerning money and involving both security and interest. This is the concept in the Greek. And so Paul says, when it comes to what you owe, when it comes to the security, when it comes to the interest, when it comes to that which you are obligated, I am obligated to both Jew and to Gentile, Paul says. When it comes to that, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I think there ought to be a little introspection here. We ought to ask ourselves, both individually and as a society, why don't we like to talk about what we owe? I mean, we all have it. Debt can't be hidden. You can go down the courthouse, there's all sorts of public records, mortgages, car payments, taxes, revolving debt. The bill shows up every month. If you owe something, you know it. If you don't know it or don't recognize it before long, you're going to owe a lot more. <laughs> That's the way it works. Guys, i got to tell you, Scripture does not have really anything good to say about, doesn't really have anything good to say about interest. Exodus 22, 25. Here's just a couple. Exodus 22, 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not extract interest from him. Deuteronomy 23, 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Scripture takes it farther than that. This is because the activity is inherently forbidden, then we should basically have no part in that on either end, not even indirectly to the lending. Which is why Solomon writes in Proverbs 22, verse 26, and says, not only don't lend at interest, but be not one of those who gives pledges who puts up security for debt. And the pledge is when you sign your name on the bottom of the line. And the security is when you put up collateral. He says this because the result is ultimately, the very next verse, the borrower becomes the slave to the lender, and the lender, by definition, then becomes the slave master. The rich rules over the poor, the borrower is the slave of the lender, and it often yields cyclical generational sin, as we see outlined in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, where the people of Israel basically did what the United States of America has done and said, man, we have a hard time getting all the stuff we want, so we're going to mortgage our fields and we're going to mortgage our homes. And then they realize one day that they have literally mortgaged their children into enslavement. I think one of the reasons that the concept of owing, when it's spoken about, bothers us so much more than so many other sins is because if we're going to be honest with ourselves in America today, the reason we owe is generally because of excess. Friends, we owe more on what we want than on what we need. This is absolutely true of me. I'm sure it's true of many of us. And yet, and we've got to look at this because this is what the word means, man. This is what it's talking about. Yet we would be remiss if we did not admit that there was tension in the text. Hey guys, listen. You know, this isn't color by number. This is the full counsel of the wisdom of God. There is tension in the text. We all owe. No matter how responsible you've been, You owe whether we like it or not. I mean, we just finished Romans chapter 13, verse 7, where Paul says, pay to all what is owed them. The exact same word in the Greek. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And that is really difficult when the guy that the taxes are owed to is also the guy that respect and honor is owed to. That's when stuff starts getting tough. Christ says don't refuse to lend. Isn't that interesting? Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. As a matter of fact, Paul himself is willing to take on the debt of Onesimus that he owes to Philemon Paul's willing to take the debt of another on as his own debt. He writes in Philemon verses 17 through 20, 
speaking to, the, to him who Onesimus owes so much and says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul writes to Philemon about this slave, Onesimus, who has run away and who is extremely in that cultural context in the extreme debt of his master he can pretty much do whatever he wants with him at this point and paul says look you put his debt on me i'll pay on his behalf but by the way i'm going to want to collect my debt in the lord from you too we talk about what is owed we talk about the aphelio the the principle the interest so often about the numbers but the kingdom's much more concerned with what's behind the numbers the kingdom's real concern is not so much about the amount that is owed but instead what is actually owed owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Aphelio, while always concerning debt and what is old, and nearly exclusively dealing with the concept of currency, is not absolutely exclusive to dealing with the concept of currency. It always stems from there. The concept comes from banking. But the currency of the kingdom is different than the currency of men. Let me give you a couple of examples. The way this concept of owing is used in the text that is different just from owing interest in principle. Here it is in the negative in, in the Gospel of John in chapter 19 and verses 6 through 8. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, that being Christ, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought, he ophelio, to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. And so if you want to translate this directly, it would read like this. We have a law, and according to that law, he owes his death, because he has made himself the Son of God. In their mind, the debt that Christ had to society for claiming in truth that he was equal with the Father meant that he owed a debt of death. His life was forfeit in order to pay the bill. If you want to see it in the positive, we see it in the Gospel of John in chapter 13, in verse 13 through 14. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought, you also aphelio, to wash one another's feet. Or if you want the direct translation, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also owe it to one another to wash their feet. Now, that's a powerful statement. You ever been in on a foot washing? Uncomfortable. I'm thinking that's kind of part of the point. Nobody wants to wash my feet. I don't want to wash my feet. I do it. But it's not tall on the list of highlights for the day. Now, we preached the Gospel of John and we got to the part about the foot washing. I put a bowl of water up there in a rag and everybody's nervous. And we look at that event and we think, man, if I was, if I was really a spiritual guy. Now look, we know, and, and I'm not going to exegete today, we know he's talking about something a whole lot bigger than scrubbing Mark's feet. 
That being the case, I will go back to what Scripture says about if you're not faithful in the small things, you won't be faithful in the big things. He's talking about stuff a lot bigger than scrubbing feet. But we look at that and you think, man, if I was really spiritual and if I was really humble and the Lord really moved on me in the right way, you know, it's in Scripture, so I can't ever put it as a won't do, right? But, but you know, it would just have to, everything would have to just be right. Yeah, that's not what Jesus said. He says you owe it. It's obligatory. It's an obligation to do these things for your brothers and your sisters. Direct translation, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also owe it to one another to wash their feet. So, while this word is historically, grammatically concerned with the owing of principle and interest, that concept of obligation can then be applied to other things, whether it be the debt to society that you owe for breaking a law or what you owe to your brothers and your sisters because you're in Christ with them. And so too we see it in Romans chapter 13. And the context is going to determine both the debt and the remittance. That which is owed and the manner in which it is paid. And so the context of Romans chapter 13 verse 8 Owe no one anything except to love, to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The context is verse 9 and 10. For the commandments, the statutes that make up the law, for the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. So the whole ball of wax, here's a couple you know, highlighted examples, and then the entirety of the law are summed up, and I don't have time this morning, but that word summed up is so cool. It's not the kind of summation that we make in the West where we hit the high points and try to bring it all back together. It means to take the many and with an emphatic blow forge them into one. All of this is actually just one big ball of wax. It is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is, I know it says fulfilling, but it really means the fullness of the law. The fullness of the law. When you consider the context of Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, the debt is what is created by the law, and the remission, that which is owed, is nothing less than agape love. And if you remit that, it will cover every single line item in the debt created by the law. I'll give you some examples of it. You want to see an example of love owed? One of the clearest is the love that is owed from the husband to his wife. Go figure. It's the testimony of Christ in the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, in the same way, husbands should, ophelio, they should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Men, you need to listen to me today. Here's the direct translation. In the same way, husbands owe love to their wives as their own bodies. It's not just that you should. You, know, you read that in English and you're like, okay, here's what I should do. Husbands, you should love your wife. Okay, that's what I should do. There's a lot of stuff I should do. I should eat less saturated fat. I should eat less salt and drink more water. I should move around more. I should make sure that my office is better organized and more presentable. There's a lot of stuff I should do. You know, I should wear polarized sunglasses more when I'm in the sun and maybe use some, some sunblock. UV light's bad for you. There's all sorts of stuff I should do. There's not a whole lot of things that I owe. Men, we owe it to our wives. We owe it to love them. 
And not just in any way, but particular in agape. Because guys, let me tell you something. Warm fuzzies are great. It's great. But warm fuzzies don't make sure that they have a roof on their head, that they're being well discipled, that there's food in their refrigerator, and then they have the confidence to go be able to go to sleep at night knowing that they're safe in your care. Phileo doesn't get that done. Agape gets that done. We owe it to them. We owe it to them because of Christ, and we'll get to that in just a second. But it goes more than just husband and wife. You want to talk about owing love? What about Romans chapter 15? We'll be there in just a few weeks. In verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation and a phileo to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Or the direct translation, we who are strong owe it to bear with the failing of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now doesn't that just burn your butter? Pretty easy. You know, my wife makes it pretty easy for me to love her. It's not a tough debt to pay. Now, sometimes the weak will just wear you out. And in our flesh, we say stuff like, well, instead of me owing it to them, how about they just quit being weaklings? That sounds like a good plan. And let me tell you guys, Scripture teaches that. I mean, it teaches discipleship that moves you away from being a weakling to looking more and more and more like Christ. Yes, you should not stay there. No doubt about it. And if you are, there's something wrong. And if the people that are discipling you are allowing you to stay there, there's something wrong with the way they're discipling you. That being said, for the time that you are weak, those who are strong owe it to you to bear with you during that time. And so while my flesh might want to say something like, well, how about you just quit being a weakling? What the Spirit says is, hey, big boy, why don't you remit what you owe? Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay. Well, what's the big deal with fulfilling the law? I mean, everybody knows we're not under law, we're under grace. And Christ has he's fulfilled the law on my behalf. I mean, I mean this, was the, this, this was the virgin birth. This was the sinless life lived. This was the sacrifice that was made on the cross. This was the resurrection from the dead. This was the remittance of the blood in the true temple in heaven on the actual mercy seat that propitiates our sin. What's the big deal with fulfilling the law? Are we not set free from the law? No. We are not set free from the law. As though the holy and righteous standard of God no longer applies. And we are set free from the law as our accuser. We are set free from the law as the means to arrive at salvation because through the law the means of salvation has already arrived. We're set free from the law of Moses. But you better believe you're not set free from the law of God. You see, the law of Moses was heading somewhere. It was the means to another law. A law that only Christ would fulfill. Which is why he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Thank you, Lord. Where was the law of Moses leading? The law of Moses was leading to the law of God himself. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews says that it was a shadow and a copy of the fullness thereof. In Romans chapter 9, verse 30, Paul said it like this. In chapter 9, verse 30 through 33, Paul says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued, now listen, not just pursued the law, 
but pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, because man, there is no one that is made righteous by the law. But if you follow the law of Moses hard enough, it stops at one place, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. The problem with Israel not landing at the foot of the cross was not the problem with the law that was supposed to lead them there. It was they took the law and they pursued it in a way it was never meant to be pursued. They pursued it in the works of the flesh instead of pursuing the law by faith. It's like putting diesel in a gasoline engine. It doesn't work. This is not how it was designed. The law would lead them to righteousness. It would lead them to the cross. It would lead them from the law of Moses to the fullness of the law of God if it had only been pursued the way that God designed it to be pursued, which was not by works but by faith. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We believe. So let's make sure we don't stumble. You want to know why we owe a debt of love to each other? I mean, think about that. Why do we owe a debt of love to each other? You know, and and we'll throw the cliche out. I've already done it once today. Well, you know, listen, you know, Christ loved me when I was his enemy, and so we should love our enemies. Okay, I suppose there that you see kind of this example of what righteousness is and we're striving for righteousness. So therefore, if he did that in righteousness and we want to be righteous, we should do that as well. But I think that's kind of the shallow end of the pool. By the same token, you can say, okay, we shouldn't owe no one anything except for to love each other. And so if we're talking about the brethren here, we can say, well, Christ loves all the brethren and and, and therefore, in righteousness, if we're going to, you know, if we want to be righteous, then we should love all the brethren as well. But, and that's true. But once again, I think we're kind of in the shallow end of, of the pool. The reason that we owe a debt of love is because Christ owed a debt of love. The reason that we are indebted to remit love to each other is because Christ was indebted to remit love to us. Now, on the surface, stick with me. On the surface, you go, now, wait, that's kind of bone you'll choke on. Now, wait a minute. I mean, we've all been through the new members class. We all talk about God as being the only self-sufficient being in all of existence. I mean, we just spent weeks speaking about the fact that our God is both just and our God is free. He sits in the heavens, He does whatever pleases Him. How in the world can you say that Jesus Christ owed anything? How can you say He was indebted to anything? He's free. He's self-sufficient. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. How in the world could he maintain a debt? Well, he can because he says he does. That's why. First and foremost, he does because he says he does and his word says he does. So turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me and we'll look what... Scripture says about Christ being indebted. Ophelio. That which Christ owes. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Since therefore the children, that being the children of faith, me and you, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Okay, we're talking about debt and payment. I think by this point in time, if you've been around here for very long, we all have been well educated as to what propitiation means. Propitiation means the remittance of a debt, the payment of a debt in full. And so here at the end of verse 17, we see the payment of the debt. We see the remittance. What's a little harder to see in the English is the debt itself. It, however, is at the beginning of verse 17 where it says, Therefore he had to be made. The Greek here, the English that is translated as had, is the word aphilio. Therefore he had to be made, he aphilio, to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make payment for the sins of the people. So if you want the direct translation of verse 17, it reads like this. Therefore, he owed it. He owed it. He was indebted. He owed it to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make payment for the sins of the people. He owed it and he paid it. He was indebted and then he propitiated. Christ owed a debt. He owed a debt to become merciful. He owed a debt to become the faithful high priest. In the service of God, he owed his own blood to make propitiation for the, what? Children, plural. And the plural is what it all hangs on. Friends, let me tell you, Hebrews chapter 2 kicks the lyrics that he paid a debt he did not owe, I owed a debt I could not pay right in the teeth. Sounds great. Sung it my whole life. It is doctrinally just wrong. He did not pay a debt he did not owe. He paid a debt he owed. Now he certainly paid a debt I could not pay. (laughs) But he paid a debt he owed And because he did, it's a debt that you and I owe too. And here's why he owed it. And here's who he owed it to. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. But the righteousness of God has now been manifest apart from the law. For those that pursued the law by faith, the law arrived at the exact place that it was always designed to arrive at, and that is righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that comes to us as the gift of grace through the gift of faith. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that's what they were always supposed to do. They're supposed to tell you about it so you could get there. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, the payment in full, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, the context of which we speak that is the law arriving at the place that God designed the law to arrive at by faith, not by works. That's the context. And what is Christ doing? Christ is paying the debt. He's making the propitiation. He's making propitiation for a debt that I owed and you owed, and that according to Hebrews chapter 2, that he also owed. Why does he owe it? So that the one who is justice might simultaneously become the justifier. He was not content in his glory to simply be justice. He was not satisfied with it. It was not enough for him. He said, I'm more than that. Oh, he is the fullness of justice. A justice that, praise God, contains as part and partial to it mercy and compassion. And he said, I will not simply be justice. I will be the justifier. Jesus Christ owed it the very moment he didn't obliterate Adam and Eve for their sedition. The moment that he let them live, he owed a debt. He owed a debt to his own justice. Not because there's some rule of righteousness hanging over the head of God that he is indebted to if he breaks it. God is free, he is the standard. He defined righteousness. All his ways are justice. Man, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 through 31 says, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is our righteousness. He is our justice. He is our justifier the moment he let one sinner live. He owed a debt not to some standard that stands above him. He owed a debt to himself. He owed a debt to himself, to his own holy character, to his own righteousness, to not allow the guilty to live. And having been the justifier of the guilty, he paid his own price with his own blood. When it comes to law, mercy, and love, God is both the lender and the remitter. He holds the note He burns the note. Both demanded by nothing less or nothing more than his own character, the very definition of righteous and just. Okay. Then what does it have to do with me? I mean, if Christ did this, If Christ said, I let you live, and now I'm indebted to my own character. (laughs) My own character is demanding the price be paid. And I did not extract it from you, even though you owed it. Now I owe it, I've got to pay it. And so I pay it with my own lifeblood. I compounded your debt into mine, and then I paid myself. At great cost. You say, okay, well, 
You did it, man. You did it. And so if you paid this one debt that was my life, and you paid it with your lifeblood, then why do I owe this new debt to love everyone? Because let's face it, you know, agape's hard. Agape's hard. You know, phileo's, you know, you either got it or you don't, right? And if you got it, it's easy. And if you don't, it's impossible. I mean, it's easy for me to, you know, phileo my wife. That's easy. You know, I do sappy stuff, man. I make her the dinner that she wants. I write a little note. That's easy for me to do. It's not hard. I'm not doing it for you. Right? I'll do it for her. It's easy. But man, agape, it stretches across the board, man. This is intention of the will. And man, sometimes that will wants to buck and kick. It requires a lot of effort, man. Willing the best and doing the best for people requires work, sacrifice. There's lots of times you'd rather be doing something else. And so, man, if Christ did this, then, then, then why is it that this debt being paid then obligated me to another debt? The short answer is this. It's something we've been chasing and hammering at for a long time. We're going to keep hammering at it. And this is the way the promise came to us. You don't get to pick and choose. not a salad bar. Promise didn't start with John 3.16, didn't start with Matthew chapter 1. The promise is ageless grace. By the time we're done with Romans, the introduction to this sermon, that last sermon, will be the fullness of the gospel in Romans. And it's a lot more than the Roman road. The short answer is salvation is miraculously complex. And it is accomplishing much more than simply your justification. Now, we talk about it that way a lot. Man, we, you know, tell me about salvation. Well, man, I've been justified. Well, okay, that's great. You have to be justified to be saved. You cannot be saved without it. If you're not justified, you're lost. But, friend, if you think that justification's it, if you think that's the gospel, you are woefully ignorant. You just are. Salvation is accomplishing much more than simply moving you and placing you from a place of damnation to a place of sonship. As we've said before, friends, if you're born again, you are the miracle. And in that miracle... Not only have you been foreknown and predestined and called and justified, and not only will you be glorified, but you're also being conformed. You're being sanctified. You're being remade in the image of your Creator and your Savior. You're conformed to an image. You're conformed to Christ's image. You're being conformed to the image of one who owed. Who owed something. He owed it to himself. And so we owe it to him. Because we are being conformed to that image. He is the image of one who loved us while we were still his enemy who owed it to his own character to go do the things of love for his people when they were, of their own accord, unlovable. And since we are being conformed to him, his image, so too 
Do we owe that same debt to love one another just as he loved me and he loved you? For in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Not simply to be justified, but to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And you have Jesus Christ owing a debt of love to his people and a people, his brothers, his sisters, that are being conformed to that image because he owes, so do we. You know why you're being conformed? You know why? Well, there's several reasons that I can think of off the top of my head, but if we want to maintain the context of Hebrews chapter 2, where it specifically talks about the debt that Christ owed that he then propitiated, then in that context, the reason that you are being conformed, the reason that it's so important for you to owe this debt of love to everyone is so that He will not be ashamed of you in His Father's presence, but instead will lead you spotless and without wrinkle in His Father's praise. This is a crazy scene, guys. This right here is Christ conforming a people. Say, why do I, why do I owe this debt? Because He owed it and He's making you look like Him. Why is He making, you look, why is he making me look like Him? Why did He pay the debt that He could do this? In order that He would not be ashamed of you when He stands before you before the Father and Christ Himself, not the choir master, but Christ Himself leads you in the praise of the Father, standing before the throne of the Father. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That congregation's me and you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. You see Christ with a congregation of the children that God has given him, leading them personally, singing the praises of God before God. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he owed it to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to pay the debt for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The conclusion is this, God owes and he is good for it. He's good for what he owes. He's good for his debt. The question is, are we? Am I? Are you? The question is becoming of increasingly critical importance. Because the end is at hand. Verse 11, Paul says, besides this, you know the time. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Friends, we are closer to that moment when Jesus Christ, without shame, will present His children in the congregation before the Father and lead them in His praise. We are closer to that now than we were when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. 
So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be conformed and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Next week, the conduct of the body, part three. Let's pray.